0: Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 17. Before the summer, we were in Matthew, and we're going to pick up where we left off there. This last summer, uh, Darcy and I spent a couple days hiking around Mount Rainier, and we did a couple of different hikes in that national park. But I think one difference between the hikes is helpful to understand our text today. If you wanted to categorize the hikes, there were two types. One is where you could see the main peak, Mount Rainier, almost the entire time, or at least get glimpses along it, of it along the way, and those where you could not see the end of the trail at all. But as I was thinking about that and as I was thinking about our text today, There's something nice about being able to see at least a glimpse of the end or the destination of where you're going, even if you see how far off it is. That if you can see a glimpse of it, it can help you to keep going when times get tough. If you can see where you're going, you can take breaks in a way that you know will help you to finish the hike. Or just knowing how much longer you have can help you overcome the steep parts of the trail. And I want to connect that to our gospel story because throughout the gospels, we see the disciples grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to earth to do. But as a part of that, we've also seen them stumble when Jesus tells them what they don't want to hear. Or it's something that goes against what they had previously thought. We saw a great example of this when we were studying Matthew chapter 16, the chapter previous to our chapter today. To remind you of this, even though I know you memorize all of my sermons verbatim, back in chapter 16, that was where we had Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what happened just a couple of verses later, Jesus talks about suffering and dying and Peter thinks it's appropriate for him to rebuke Jesus and correct Jesus. Which by the way, just by application, if you ever find yourself in a place where you think you can correct Jesus, just stop. Right, and we saw those familiar words of Jesus saying to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." It was a stumble in the trail. Because Jesus was talking in a way that Peter didn't want to hear. And it was challenging what Peter had already thought was to be the case. And it's in that context that I'm helped to understand our text today. Because there's going to be some weird parts to our text today. We're going to be looking at the transfiguration. We're going to have glowing Jesus. And I think one of the reasons... That God decides to do this is to give the disciples a glimpse of his glory. And that that will help them to understand that on the way to glory is a road of suffering and death. So let's turn to our text today. Matthew chapter 17 beginning So at the beginning of this chapter, Matthew tells us that six days have passed since the stories we read in chapter 16. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Sometimes Jesus only had the twelve with him. And other times, there were these times where Jesus had sort of this inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And Jesus takes them and led them up a high mountain. And when they got to the top of the mountain... Matthew says this, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It is this display of Jesus' true glory. This reminds us of other passages like, like the Christmas story, where when the angels appear to the shepherds, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. And it reminds us of descriptions of God in places like Ezekiel or the description of Jesus in Revelation. Let me read that to you as an example. This is from Revelation chapter 1. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. We have this display of the true divine glory of God. And we'll talk a little more about why Jesus is doing this later. But for now, I just want you to see that Jesus is giving the disciples a glimpse Of his divine glory. It is one of the ways he is giving evidence that he is not just a man, but he is, in fact, God himself. But then Matthew tells us that in addition to this display of glory, Moses and Elijah appear and start talking with Jesus. And it leads to a natural question. Why did God have Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus? Thank you for asking. I want to read an extended quote from one of the commentators because he lists in this all of the reasons why God might be having Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. And when we take this all together, I think we'll see some major themes. Let me read an extended quote here. Both Moses and Elijah had end times roles. Moses was the model for the end times prophet, as we see in Deuteronomy 18, and Elijah for the forerunner of Jesus in Malachi chapter 4. Both had strange ends. Both were men of God in times of transition, the first to introduce the covenant and the second to work for renewed adherence to it. Both experienced a vision of God's glory, one at Mount Sinai and the other at Mount Horeb. Both suffered rejection of various kinds. Together they may well summarize the law and the prophets. All these associations gain importance as the narrative moves on and Jesus is perceived to be superior to Moses and Elijah and indeed to supersede them. Not to get too far ahead of myself, but remember the overarching goal of the Gospels is to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God who came to the world to save sinners. And in some ways, we need to view the different passages of the Gospels through the lens of this mounting evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. So here we have this amazing visual depiction of God's glory from Jesus. And this is not Moses glowing because of being in the presence, but rather the divine glory is shining out from Jesus. And then you add into that the presence of Elijah and Moses representing the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, and they all speak to the same truth, that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Savior. We see the divine glory of God displayed in Christ, and we see him converse with Moses and Elijah, saying, I am the one who fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. And into this, Peter, good old Peter, he's got some ideas. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Good old Peter, always trying to be helpful. Peter offers to make three tents one for Jesus, one for Moses. 1 for Elijah I love the detail that Mark includes in his telling of this story where it says for Peter did not know what to say for he was terrified <laughs> So when you don't know what to say try to be helpful There you go You know I think we can see that Peter, James and John are overwhelmed by the sight of the glory of God in Jesus And then the presence of these heroes of their faith in Moses and Elijah. And again, to to use Mark's phrasing, he he didn't even know what he was saying. But God has better plans for this display of glory than for Peter to make a couple tents. Interrupting Peter's plan, notice it says he was still speaking when... (laughs) God's like, it's okay, Peter, I got this one. (laughs) God himself speaks. Now, before we get to what God says in particular, let me make some notes of the details that Matthew includes around God's speaking. It says, when God speaks, we are told that a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said. Even this small detail points us back To the Old Testament. Whether or not Peter, James, and John made this connection in the moment, Matthew definitely wants us to see an Old Testament connection in this detail. And this idea of God speaking to his people from a bright cloud takes us back to the book of Exodus and God being on Mount Sinai. I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 24 a couple excerpts. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire, on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. God speaking from this glorious cloud, again, echoing the scriptures that Peter, James, and John knew. We need to see this again, just so much evidence as to what God is saying about Jesus. God does not want the disciples and us to miss that Jesus is the Son of God and promised Savior. There's just no mistaking because there's even the glowing cloud like there was back in Exodus. And that leads us to a direct message from God Himself. Let's look at that in three parts. Number one, Jesus is my beloved son. When the Bible talks about Jesus being God's son, it's not that he's sort of a lesser, like demigod, like you'd find in the Greek mythologies. It's a way to talk about the full deity of Christ that Jesus is the loved son of God, that he is God himself. And you want to think of it this way, God didn't want Peter to make the tents because the point was not for the disciples to get to hang out with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were present to provide evidence that Jesus was the promised Savior. He was the one that Moses and Elijah were preparing God's people for. He is greater than Moses and Elijah and all the other heroes of the Old Testament. They are not the beloved son. And I alluded this to you earlier. But Let me now read from Deuteronomy 18. Because again, this was a part of why Moses is there, but it also points to the fact that Jesus was greater than Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is not just another prophet or holy man like Moses and Elijah. He is the one to whom all the scriptures pointed. He is God himself who came down in flesh to die and rise again so that all who believe in him will be saved. Secondly, God says, With whom I am well pleased. This highlights that Jesus lived his life in every way that was pleasing to God. He lived a perfect life. And the reason that that's important is that allowed him to pay the penalty for our sin. This is also in contrast to the conflicts that Jesus keeps having with the religious leaders. We can be sympathetic to the people back then being confused because their religious leaders were rejecting Jesus. And while the religious leaders of that day were not pleased with Jesus... God himself says to the disciples, with Jesus, I am well pleased. Jesus has God's stamp of approval that he is in fact the promised Savior. And then finally, God says, listen to him. This is a call to faith and obedience. If Jesus really is the Son of God and promised Savior, we need to follow him. And if he is God incarnate and our Savior, then we had better listen when he speaks. And when we think about listening to and following Jesus, we can use those words of faith and obedience. That we listen when he speaks and we follow him in faith and obedience. And this leads to the final moment. In this part of the passage, look at verses six to eight with me. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. In response to Jesus' glory and God's voice from the cloud, the disciples fell on their faces. And we're terrified. About this, one author writes that the fear the disciples experienced magnified the greatness of the transfiguration. It helps us to put ourselves in their shoes to show us the immensity of God's glory seen in that moment. But they are not meant to stay in fear. Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. When we are with Jesus, we have nothing to fear. And through whom we do not have to fear the holy glory and majesty and power of God. We can see the glory of God and live. And then Matthew tells us in verse 8, When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, before we move on to the second part of this passage, I want to show you a place where this story shows up later in the New Testament in one of Peter's letters. Let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read one excerpt from a larger section. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes this, For we do, did not follow cleverly devised myths, On the holy mountain. Do you see how Peter is drawing back on the experience of the transfiguration when he's writing the book of Second Peter? And in the context of 2 Peter, Peter is telling his readers about the credibility of his testimony. And later he's going to talk about the credibility of the scriptures. See, they didn't just make up these stories of Jesus, they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They heard themselves, the voice of God, say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased because they were there on the holy mountain. Peter, James, and John didn't make this story up. They didn't make up the truth that Jesus is our Savior. They were eyewitnesses, they were witnesses to this truth. And as they were eyewitnesses to this display of glory, they are then reliable witnesses to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, who is the promised Savior sent to save his people from their sin. Now in these next verses, there's sort of a sharp transition. Where they go up the mountain and see a display of glory, But as they come down the mountain, they're going to talk about what it means to suffer. So let's look beginning verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now we've seen this before in the Gospels, and it can be confusing is Jesus will tell someone, hey, don't tell anybody about what I just did. And one of the reasons I want to highlight verse 9 is because it explicitly gives an end date to that command that I think is implied in a lot of the other commands. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And I think that helps us to understand why Jesus gave this sometimes confusing command to people throughout the scriptures. Because they wouldn't be able to clearly understand what he was doing until after the resurrection, until his work was completed. He didn't want them (laughs) talking about things they didn't fully understand. But obviously because Matthew then writes it, The disciples understood, look, after the resurrection, we can tell everybody about this. But it helps us to understand that sometimes we have to understand the Gospels in light of the crucifixion and resurrection. And to do so without that would be to misunderstand what Jesus is doing. But this then leads to a question from the disciples. Look at verse 10 with me. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now they're thinking about their Old Testament and probably thinking specifically about Elijah because they just saw him. And they're like, wait a minute, Jesus. Why does the Bible say that Elijah must come first? They were thinking about the book of Malachi. Let me read to you from the book of Malachi. I'm actually going to read the entire chapter 4, but it's only six verses, so it'll be okay. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let me summarize what I think is the confusion that the disciples had leading them to ask this question. Back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus told the people that John the Baptist was Elijah who is to come. But then... John the Baptist is executed. But according to Malachi, this Elijah is going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, this day of judgment. So John came and went, and now they have even seen the original Elijah, and yet they are not seeing the day of judgment. And on top of that, before this story, back in chapter 16 and after this story, what we'll see next week in the second part of chapter 17, Jesus openly talks about how he must go to Jerusalem and be killed. So how does the death of the promised Elijah and the death of the promised Savior fit with the coming day of judgment? You can understand their confusion. They did not understand That it was Jesus' sacrificial death that brought about his victory over sin and death. But it does raise these questions. Did God's plan get upset? Did the enemies of God win? Was John not actually the promised Messiah? And here Jesus answers their question in verses 11 and 12. Look at that with me. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus confirms that John was, in fact, the promised Elijah. He's like, Yes, Elijah does come, and Elijah has already come. And as we see in verse 13, Matthew ends the story with the disciples growing in their understanding that Jesus was saying that John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. Jesus confirms that the promise in Malachi was fulfilled. He also confirmed that John fulfilled his mission as the promised Elijah. And it is a little difficult that Jesus uses different language here. Jesus says he will restore all things. And it's hard to understand because John the Baptist didn't seem to restore all things in his ministry. I found one of the commentators helpful here who views this as a statement telling us that John the Baptist's mission was a success because he did fulfill his mission, even though it didn't appear that way to the disciples. John fulfilled the job he was given. He prepared the way for Jesus, and he was killed because of it. Just because John was killed did not mean that he did not fulfill his mission to prepare people for the coming of Jesus But as we often see when people ask a question of Jesus, Jesus moves past their question to the more important issues at hand. And he adds this, changing the conversation from being about John to being about himself, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. The more important thing the disciples need to understand is that the past treatment of John points to the future treatment of Jesus. John was rejected as the promised Elijah and was killed. And in the same way, Jesus will be rejected as the promised Savior and will be killed. But that does not mean that Jesus failed. It was through his suffering and death that Jesus won our salvation. It was through his rejection and crucifixion that he died for our sins so that all who repent and believe will be saved. It is through the suffering of Jesus that we are saved. The disciples only expected the power and the glory. But at this point, they did not understand that Jesus needed to suffer and die for our sins. But we know, after the crucifixion and resurrection, they began to understand Peter again in his later writing in the letters using the words from Isaiah 53 writes this For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps He committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth When he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued in trusting himself to him who judges justly He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls christ suffered so that we could be forgiven and made righteous and one day experience the true hope of glory Paul writes this in Colossians, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And as Paul writes in Romans 8, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And on that day, it won't just be a moment of glory, a glimpse of glory. John writes in Revelation 22, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of glory to show them the end, that as they would then walk through and stumble over the necessity of him suffering and dying for our sins, that they would get a picture of the glory that is to be revealed in us. A couple thoughts as I close up this morning. Again, the two parts of this story, the glory and the suffering, First thing, Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of his true glory. For a moment on that mountain, Jesus gave this amazing display of his deity, showing the disciples that he was truly the Son of God, God himself. And seeing Moses and Elijah with him showed the disciples that he was the promised Savior, fulfilling God's plan of salvation. And the voice from heaven, God himself, testifying to who Jesus was, this testimony is true, and it's true for you. Jesus is the Son of God who came to this world to be our Savior. He is God incarnate who came to the earth to save sinners who repent of their sins and place their trust in Him. Secondly, one day we will fully be with Jesus in His glory. In our story here, Jesus displayed his glory and then didn't. Our hope in Jesus is that one day we will spend eternity with the glorified Jesus. And that glory will not be momentary. It will be forever. Thirdly, Jesus was glorified through the sufferings of the cross. Jesus completed his mission as the promised Savior by dying a sacrificial death for us. Jesus was not just a leader or teacher of his people. It was through his suffering and death that all who believe in him are forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. Jesus suffered and died so that you might live. And finally, as we put together these two ideas of suffering and glory, As followers of Jesus, we can endure suffering following the example of Jesus, looking forward to the hope of eternal life. As I said previously, one day we will experience the full glory of Jesus in heaven. And because of that, because of that promise, that one day we will all be with him in eternity, we can faithfully endure the suffering of this world. John the Baptist and Jesus suffered in their faithfulness. And so we also endure suffering as we live lives of faithfulness to Jesus. And as Peter wrote in his letter, Jesus left a model for us to endure unjust suffering as we stand on the hope of our salvation, of our Savior who bore our sins in his body on the tree. As Paul wrote, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for this story of seeing a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And we look forward to one day seeing him face to face in his full glory for eternity. We thank you that he did suffer and die so that all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Green Bank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.